0: analytics with mike lewis the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics here's your host mike lewis marketing professor at emory university okay welcome everyone welcome to the fanalytics podcast my name is mike lewis i'm a professor at the Weta school of business at emory university i am joined as always by mr doug battle how are you doug
1: I am well, and we are joined by quite a few other folks as well.
0: So we are doing something special and something I hope we can do more of going into the future. So uh, we are, like I said, part of the brought to you by the Marketing Analytics Center. So we are part of an larger academic community. In, in general, I don't spend a lot of time with the MBA students. My teaching tends to be at the undergraduate level and the masters of business Analytics. But the MBA's, uh, MBA program at Emory is a, is a great program, and we got a lot of really good students that are interested in topics related to marketing and sports analytics. So we thought it would be a fun episode to do a question and answer related to the NCAA tournament. Um, I will start us off by sort of just kind of positioning why I why i love the ncaa tournament and why i think it is such a special event in terms of but both it's again like the super bowl it's one of these events where the world of sports and the world of marketing come together to be a really powerful and important cultural event uh we are uh taping this on monday the 8th that leaves us what uh what about a week out from um Week and a couple days out from Selection Sunday, and you know the the tournament will be the major sports story of this coming month. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this is, uh, and really just to start the conversation: Who could you guys list? What you think of when you think of the best? And again, intentionally ambiguous: the best college basketball brands. Okay, I'm watching these things come in, and you know what, I'll I'll read them in real time. Duke, Kansas, UCLA, Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky, UNC, Kansas, Villanova, and there's even a Gonzaga out there. Okay, now I'm going to tell you. Well, I'll tell you who I wrote down, sort of almost like a little bit of a tribute to the old Johnny Carson Karnak. I wrote down Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky, UCLA, and Kansas. Uh, Doug, what do you think in terms of the top five college basketball brands?
1: Yeah, I mean, pretty much the same. I think it's pretty unanimous here. Duke and UNC always come to mind. Um, Can't really talk college basketball historically without talking about UCLA in that conversation as well um kansas of course and more recently i think villanova um back in the day indiana some more and unfortunately your illini
0: are not on this list uh
1: <laughs> that, <laughs> that for anyone
0: yeah well well you know what in in the, that's kind of great and you know like so i i said it's intentionally ambiguous right in, in terms of what are the best what does it even mean to be the best teams or the best brands right it, Obviously, it has something to do with the historical winning rates. It has something to do with the appeal in the, in the marketplace. But it's kind of a fuzzy thing. And there's also a time component to it, right? So uh, UCLA did not get a lot of love on this list. But you guys know that UCLA has the most team championships uh, of all time. I think they're at about 11. Um, Doug mentioned Indiana. It would hurt the people in the state of Indiana that they were not sort of Put out there amongst the the blue blood teams, but even then, the, the also on the side of this this kind of recency effect of Villanova coming into play, largely based on I think the the program that Jay Wright has built there over really the last uh, the last five years, maybe a little bit more than five years. So, with that being said, you know this is a interesting tournament that we're rolling into for a couple of reasons. Um, first off, well. Uh, Doug, in terms of your prediction, I think you follow some of this more closely in terms of this list of Blue Bloods. Uh, what kind of prediction do you have in terms of how many of these teams are actually going to get to play or which of these Blue Blood teams are not going to get to play?
1: Yeah, it, it's a weird year um, when Duke is not expected to make the tournament. Of course, they would have to win the ACC most likely to make the NCAA tournament. Um I mean, there's a handful of these that, that aren't going to be in it this year. And uh, it, it's an interesting scenario for college basketball, because on the one hand, you think that these big brand teams are what draw big audiences to watch the games. But on the flip side, uh, I like watching the, the underdog teams. I like watching the Cinderella's the you know, I was watching North Alabama the other day in their conference tournament, and they're not even eligible to make the NCAAs, but they were essentially a D2 team that, that was competing against D1 teams and has a shot to, or had a chance to win their conference. And so, um, it's interesting in college basketball when it comes to teams like Duke drawing the crowds versus, you know, watching Steph Curry for Davidson make a run at the elite eight.
0: You know, and I think you, you raised some good points in there. You know, the, the NCAA tournament has always been this, uh, Blue Bloods on one side of the equation, and Cinderella teams on the other side, and I think that's that's allegedly, or I think that's the conventional wisdom in terms of what that's what made for the magic of the tournament and turn this into turn this into a you know part of the the sports royalty. Let's say in terms of really kind of the key big marquee events that go across the American sports calendar. Okay, so, you know, and again, you know, and I'm sure this will come up as we go to some questions. On top of all of that, you know, we can't forget the fact that this is the first NCAA tournament that's going to happen in two years now, right? Uh, following massive disruptions due to the, the COVID-19 pandemic. So with that being said, it is kind of the background. What I really want to do is really make this a question and answer. So let's open it up to, let's open it up to the uh, to the audience. Zad, what's your uh, what's your thought?
2: Yeah, I'll ask ask one of these uh, the questions. Um, So over the past, I'll say a couple of years, and you guys made a mention about the blue bloods in general. But over the past couple of years, we've seen a shift of some of these. Um, historically successful programs like Duke or UNC or Kentucky who have now started to just perform just a lot worse. Is this something that you can attribute to, you know, players who are there for a year and leaving versus players in other programs staying for, you know, a longer period of time? Or, or why is this shift starting to occur that these other programs are starting to really come to, to rise um, versus what was traditionally like the best teams?
0: I think you know there's there's a real um uh, and and sort of uh, the way I'll address all these questions is almost more from a little bit of an academic perspective in terms of, let's say, the theory and the way the leagues are built in terms of what what level of competition you're likely to get out. And I, I think you're 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 dead on that there may well be a a bit of a transition over time, whereas, you know, back in the day, you got to remember, Michael Jordan played three years of college basketball. Patrick Ewing, I think, played. 4 years of college basketball. And so the elite talent was starting out as 18 19 year olds and growing to become men. And those programs were able to add layer after layer, year after year of elite talent. Now I think what you're what you're seeing and it's almost sort of this uh, this competition between expected value. Let's say if you're going to go out there and you're going to recruit the top 5 or top 10 players well, your expected value of how good those guys are going to be, you still have that, that advantage, right? But now we've got a larger element of variance, right? Because now you're just getting these guys at age 18, and 18, 19, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. On the other side, you've got programs like the Gonzaga, I think is the one that you mentioned, that are now positioned where maybe they have a bunch of juniors and seniors that are, and, and, and maybe what it boils down to is, you got guys that are ranked, let's say, fortieth, but they're twenty-two years old playing against guys that are eighteen. And, you know, well, guess what? Some years when you got Zion Williams, it's Williamson, it's still gonna work out for Duke. But in other years, maybe you're gonna see Gonzaga, or you're gonna see who's the uh, Doug, who's the kid leading the Big Ten and scoring? Because I think he's the poster child for this effect. Luke Garza. Luke, Gar- yeah, Luke Garza. Luke
3: Garza. Luke Garza. Yeah, Luke Garza. You know, yeah,
0: Luca Is perfect for this, right? He's a man amongst, uh, he's sort of the the proverbial man amongst boys.
1: Yeah, and I was going to chip in on that. Um, if you look even at the last, college uh, I was going to say college football playoff, <laughs> at the last tournament, uh, University of Virginia won, and that was a tournament where you had teams like Duke with Zion and R.J. Barrett. There were some stacked freshman teams, but UVA was led by three juniors. So I do think it levels the playing field a bit. Um, the structure of the league and the NBA where they're requiring players to stay at least one year. Teams like Duke get decimated every year. They're starting from scratch every single year. A team like UVA maybe doesn't recruit this at the same level as Duke, but by the time they've got juniors that are, that have been playing together for three years, playing against a group of 18 year olds um, and granted in the regular season that year, Duke did beat UVA, but in a tournament setting, where there, there's more maturity required of the players, I do think it's it can be favorable to teams like Virginia and some of these um, teams that have been on the rise in recent years in, in this era, whereas Kentucky and Duke are seeing less and less national championships for, for teams like that. And that's just one variable at play, of course.
0: But, you know, and, and I'll add to that, you know, one of the things that may start to swing that, well, and, you know, we'll, we'll have to see, you know, the name, image, and likeness is another factor that may, let's say, concentrate talent at some of those blue blood so yeah college basketball more than just about any other sport is really evolving moment by moment jared what's your thought
3: all right. So uh, I have a quick question. So I'll, I'll first of all, let me preface this by saying I'm a, I grew up a really big Duke uh, basketball fan. So make whatever conclusions about me that you <laughs> want to uh, jump to. I, I've heard them all. But um, I'm curious to your thoughts on we um, talked about like the one and done transition. And you're absolutely correct. Like when I think about like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, you know, Jordan, James Worthy, those are guys who came into the league, um, having been in school for two or three years and like coming in with a defined brand. I know that social media allows kind of like Zion, right? Who came in with, you know, the mm-hmm. brand of Zion, but the other two guys didn't come in with kind of like uh, the acclaim that he did. I'm curious as to like the expected value for like the schools and as well as to the NBA, because I get the NBA wants uh, the guys to go to college for a year instead of coming straight out of high school so that they have another year to uh, to scout them. But I'm curious as to the value of letting these guys stay, you know, for two to three years in school and develop their value. Like some of the guys, you know, they're going to come out regar- and they're going to be okay regardless. But I wonder about, you know, for maybe not the person that goes one or two in the draft, but maybe like five through eight, is there some value in them staying in school and kind of like building a following, us following their careers? You know, like um, Marcus Page at UNC, mm-hmm. who, you know, we kind of watched him get to the cusp and then break through and then finally, you know, win his title. I'm curious as to like what economic value you think that that could bring.
0: You know, it, it's it's a good question. and it, But I, I think there's all sorts of different dimensions on it. You know, as you were originally talking, it was my mind went to you know how the world used to work which was when a team lost a lot of games they got a very high draft pick they were bringing in a guy that had played 4 years of college a known commodity and one of the effects you would see would be a spike in season ticket sales right where you went from you know certainly no interest in a team let's say the New York Knicks Patrick Ewing and suddenly the season ticket sales are you know off off the charts and I would guess the same something very similar happened with with Zion. I, I think it, it, in terms of the player, the conventional wisdom has now been for a number of years that the problem is with the longer you stay. Uh, and again, we you know I referenced the concept of variance before. We, we've moved to this strange world where variance is a positive for an athlete. It's almost better for an athlete to be a little bit unknown, right? Where if the key to winning a championship is having top, top elite talent, then upside becomes this thing we're drafting for, rather than really kind of knowing the pluses and the minuses of a player. So I think the longer a player st- stays, you know, unless I'd say they're a big man whose body is developing, that, that upside, that perception of just, well, how crazy could this guy be in terms of, you know, what could he just, you know, explode off the charts, that kind of disappears. Now, you do mention this idea of like building up a fan following in social media. There probably is something to that. And I do suspect that some of these players are going to be in a position to make decent livings for, let's say, three, four years. You can imagine a scenario where a player that goes to Duke and is loved by that Duke fan base and hated by every other college basketball fan in America ends up making a fortune and relative fortune in endorsements. Um, by, be- by wearing that Duke Blue Devil jersey. So I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a complicated environment. It'll be interesting. Um, Doug, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I would just uh, kind of piggyback on what you said about these players actually being undervalued, the guys that stick around. I remember Obi Toppin last year. He was in the dunk contest last night, um, but had a heck of a year for Dayton. I think he was a, the equivalent of the Heisman for college basketball. Uh, absolutely dominated. And yet come draft time, there were guys taken like Patrick Williams out of Florida state who did not even start for Florida state, but was a young guy and nobody knew, um, you know, it, it seemed like who knows what he could be. He was taken four picks ahead of Obi Toppin, who was the national player of the year. And so these franchises actually value the unknown a lot more than you would think. There's almost a bias toward the unknown. Uh, if you look at it, how they're drafting, but as far as you know, I'm sure Obi Toppin probably brought more value out the gate, as far as jersey sales are concerned, to a team like the Knicks um, than Patrick Williams did to the Bulls. But as as far as what these franchises are looking for, um, I think they're looking for the player in the long run that they think is going to potentially yield them the the best output on the floor, and and they tend to be biased to the younger and less experienced players.
0: And maybe you know, with the way you know some of the talent that's broken through the last couple of years maybe the mister the mysterious young talent of Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Zad
2: I got another question and this is uh back to the actual tournament itself. Um what kind of insights can you give us that will let me win <laughs> this tournament against everyone else at GBS right now cuz I'm I'm over here listening right now I'm trying to get all the insider info I can get. So what?
0: What can when that, you do? the help idea you prep for? Who should I be the on the lookout student, for? Student to the NBA class that was originally, I think, one of the motivations. Right, like the NCAA tournament is coming up. The NCAA tournament pool might be the largest gambling event that happens in America. Um, you know, if it's not the NCAA tournament, then it's it, then it's fantasy football at this point. I, I think it's past the the Super Bowl. And so this idea of how do you actually beat the brackets is an interesting question. Now the bad news is that that's a topic well beyond a podcast. Uh, of course. The but I but I will give you uh, you know I'll, I'll give you a little bit of kind of and, and you know Zad you know feel free to you know interject because this one this one's going to be more let's say more of a technical answer than I like to give on the podcast. The way the NCAA tournament is constructed is the the tournament committee has some sort of team power rankings. Okay. And we see power rankings across all sorts of, you know, just about every sport, right? There's gonna be a weekly power ranking for NFL teams, for NBA teams, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of these like Jeff Sagarin and you know, all these indexes that have been built over the years are essentially power rankings. Now the way power rankings work is that there's some sort of, let's say, model, some sort of notion, or some sort of system for figuring out which team is better, you know, essentially rating teams from top to, top to bottom. Um, if, if you think about a really simple example, let's say you got Team A and Team B, they play one game, Team A wins by five points, you know, you can imagine, well, there's my power rating. Team A is five points better than Team B. Now, if they play twice, and it's five points, and then it's three points, well, then, you know, it's four, okay? Now, you imagine all the games that occur throughout the year, okay? This is what these systems do, is they fit all the available data, all the scores to come up with the relative rankings. That's the main input for the selection committee. The selection committee then adds to it based on their human expertise, okay? Now, there's some real logic to that. Right. Because, you know, the models, the models are going to be bad at some things. Right. The fact that, um, you know, I, I think Maya line, I lost to Gonzaga early in the year. Maybe that that game occurred in Hawaii and there was jet lag and two guys were out with COVID. You know, that that means that a human being might look at that data point and kind of discount. So. That's the so, you know. At its heart, and not a lot of these guys are doing explicit statistical models, but here's the unfortunate thing, Zad. For you to beat the system, you do need a statistical model. And in fact, you know, you think about the data that's going to occur, right? Every game, the two teams that played, the final score, whose home court it was on, you know, maybe you can have data on the injury report, the trends, the officials. But the way to really beat that is to get into some of these more modern techniques like machine learning techniques that are designed to not just create a statistical model of who the best team is, but to actually figure out what variable, what data points are going to give you the best prediction. So is that is that a an answer that makes sense and is also distressing because I told you it's kind of... You're not probably unless you got a massive database on your desk and you got some machine learning tools. It's probably not a path you're going to be able to go down in a week.
2: No, that does make perfect sense, and it helps break it down from a data analysis perspective. I will have to start my um, research early into next year to try and win uh, next year's pool, since I don't have any of that data this year.
0: Well, but but here's the thing, right? If you look at if you look at the so, so that that's one answer. How do you actually? find the anomalies and how do you beat the system it is by data analysis now in terms of playing the pool playing against the the fellow members of goizueta a couple of insights so number one the tournament seating committee is trying to basically forecast the tournament right so they are forecasting the tournament based on power ranking based on expert opinion, based on computer models. So they've got a bunch of forecasts, some formal, some informal. You can probably look at that and go, well, this is probably pretty close to an unbiased forecast of how this is going to go. So if you look at it that way, then maybe the game becomes not so much you trying to understand which teams are actually better than your classmates, Maybe the game becomes trying to figure out what mistakes are your classmates going to make, right? So Jared uh, announced himself as a Duke fan. If Duke was in the tournament, Jared's going to pick Duke to win that get that tournament every year, right? Um, my guy Doug is a big UGA fan. I suspect if you opened a bookie, uh, a bookmaker on the UGA campus, basically, you know the the Georgia fans in Athens can't help but bet on Georgia to win every game, no matter what the line is. So can you identify the biases of your classmates and make predictions to defeat your classmates rather than to defeat, let's say, the experts?
1: Yeah, I would add on two. Um, I tend to go crazy with the upsets in the first round because it's so satisfying to pick like Wichita State in your final four and it actually happens. and You're like,
2: wow, I did that.
1: Uh, but you gotta be careful with those because if you look at the way these things are, the points are counted, there's more worth in each round. Um, and if you pick like, let's say in the first round, there might be two or three or four or five big upsets. Like if I pick five upsets, it might be, those might be the five upsets that happen, or it might be five other games where there's an upset. Um, but if I eliminate a team that ends up going very far. Uh, that's going to cost me even more. It's going to exponentially cost me as as the tournament goes on, and so you have to be really careful eliminating those teams that are likely to go far. Uh, because you, I mean, I've in the past I've wiped out a whole quarter of my bracket just with a first or second round upset. Um, it, it'll pretty much cost me the the entire tournament challenge.
0: Now I'll, I'll make one other point here in terms of gambling on NCAA tournaments. A key question in all of this is how many brackets can you actually enter. So, are you limited? If you're limited to one bracket, right, then you are trying to maximize essentially your accuracy, maybe with a little bit of you know trying to exploit the biases of of the other people playing the pool. But if you can have multiple entries, and this is very much true, like in fantasy football as well, if you can have multiple. Um, if you can have multiple lineups, multiple teams, then there's also a strategy of trying to figure out different sort of approaches to the brackets that are going to differentiate you or sort of, you, you, you're you trying to create a series of outlier brackets, right? So most of your brackets will do horrendously, but if the tournament breaks in a certain way, so oh, suddenly it's like the year of the underdogs or it's the year of the favorites or the, it's the year of the teams that all sort of had home court advice. Advantage, then that's how you come out ahead.
3: Right, uh, Evan? Yeah, I, I want. I had a question. I want to discuss a little the Flutie effect and you know these March Madness Cinderellas. Like you know Loyola Chicago goes on a run and now their applications shoot up by you know fifty percent or whatever the next year. Um, people want to go to college there just because they went on a run in the NCAA tournament. I just kind of wanted to hear you and Doug's thoughts on that because it's it's weird that it's not just like the fans of the sports teams. You know, we have like administrations of these colleges hoping is it going to be us this year? You know, we can get our test scores up, we can get um, more tuition money out of people, all that.
0: Uh, you know what? I'll let Doug get the first shot at that because Doug is a as everyone listening to the podcast knows, Doug's a UGA guy, and UGA is a, one of the one of the upper echelon teams in the SEC, the most sports-mad conference in all of America. And so, Doug, do you think that is true on a local level in terms of what you've seen?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, of course, when you say upper-level team, we're talking college football, not college <laughs> basketball. Uh, but yes. at Georgia, you see it all the time. Half the people that are there, whether they'll say it or not, they'll, they'll find some other reason to justify attending the school. Yeah, I like the business school. I like this or that. Most people that are there are there because they want to go, you know, they pull for the football team. They want to be there. Um, I know Alabama, which is where I'm from, has seen just drastic, I mean, through the roof applications and and more students from all over the country. Ever since Nick Saban came in in Alabama, rose to prominence in college football um, or rose to prominence again, I should say. But in college basketball, it just makes sense. You look at I remember. Florida Gulf coast. I don't know how many of you remember that team that that went on a big run in the tournament, Uh, but I had never heard of them. I didn't know they existed. And when they had upset a team in my bracket and started going on a run in the tournament, I looked them up and it turned out their school was like on the beach in Florida. It was beautiful. It was very small. It was in a great area. And I was a high school student at the time. And I remember thinking like, wow, like I never even knew about this place. You know, let's check into this. And of course I didn't end up going to school there. Uh, but it's just a numbers game. You get enough people doing that, and somebody's really going to spark interest and, and be the right fit for that school. And so, schools like Loyola Chicago, um, who by the way is a top 25 team this year, I believe they're top 20, um, and will be back in the tournament. Absolutely have a ton to gain from from March Madness. And uh, it's a shame Emory doesn't doesn't have a D1 basketball team because it could be beneficial for them as well.
0: Oh, the inevitable! If Emory had a D one basketball team, they would be Duke. Um, yeah. Uh, so, Evan, I'll, I'll say this: it's uh, the the Flutie effect is something that folks have looked at for a number of for a number of years, and the academic literature is actually kind of mixed on it. Some people find an effect; some people don't find an effect. I think the challenge is in you know how do you design the analysis, right? And so if you if you think about it, let's say um, you know let's say one team is um, you know I, I don't want to sort of let us say we're in the let's say we're in the SEC and um, in the SEC East, the bottom three teams. Doug, correct me if I'm wrong here. The bottom three teams are inevitably going to be South Carolina, uh, Kentucky, and then Vanderbilt. Right? Year in, year out, about right. More or okay, less. And Missouri,
1: Missouri instead Missouri. of South Carolina sometimes.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah. I feel like Missouri's still in the Big 12. Um, but, but, you know, if Kentucky is winning two more games a year in football than Vanderbilt, you're unlikely to see that effect. And so if you're just looking at the data, sometimes it, the, the effect will not be all that pronounced. I, I think what you guys are getting at is for the effect to happen the teams actually have to have some level of fairly elite success. Right? They've gotta go on. And, and look, I don't know if let's say when Brad Stevens was at Butler and suddenly Butler's a perennial Final Four team, or it seems like it. I don't know if they got that that spike as well. But I I agree that it's like when a team gets that kind of high level high profile exposure, it makes some sense that students are likely to follow. I mean, even even beyond the, the flutie effect, just on sort of basic marketing principles, college sports provides a lot of kind of not only just free advertising for colleges, they get paid to produce the advertising, right? For UGA, there's a three hour commercial for UGA on every weekend during the fall. And so, as there are more people watching, as the campus environment is more exciting, it makes some sense that that's going to have that, that powerful. A fact. the the issue of that local issue I alluded to. That's uh, you know, that is something I will hear from, particularly undergraduate students every year I've been at Emory. Is like, why can't Emory have a Division One basketball team so we would have the notoriety of a Duke and we could sleep in tents and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's it's actually kind of an interesting question. Like, what would it take at this point in twenty twenty one? How much money would it take? To actually go from D three and build a top notch basketball team, I mean, talk about a an epic journey.
1: Well, you got D one schools that are unable to have that kind of success (laughs) and pouring in hundreds of millions of dollars every year. So it'd be quite the quite the task.
0: What else you guys got?
4: Jumping with a question. Um, So apologies if something similar was asked before I joined, but what are your thoughts on like the the net rankings replacing uh, like RPI or uh, BPI, whatever it was, the Basketball Power Index. Um, like I know this year of the top 10 teams in net ranking, like nine of them are top AP 15 teams. And then there's Colgate, who is kind of terrible. Um, but they're 11-2 and two and they've only played three different teams. So somehow all the analytics put them as a top 10 team. And then the second part of that question is, what are the biggest things you think these advanced analytics miss? I know like you mentioned earlier, you know, this. let's say one game was they had an overnight flight something happened they're missing their best player that's not captured or you know someone was sick just something like that or you know even chemistry stuff like mm-hmm. that uh, so it's kind of your thoughts on that
0: yeah you know what okay so so this goes back to this issue of the the power rankings and so the NCAA has a new power ranking and I, I don't know if they've actually published the details of exactly how their ranking is is created I don't I don't know if they've Typically these things are all proprietary algorithms, so they end up being kind of black boxes. So when you ask the question of, you know, what do I sort of think about the general approach? In some ways, I kind of think the general approach is a mess, year in, year out. Because what they tend to do is they've got their power rankings, and then they start to supplement it with expert opinion and half a dozen other power rankings in, in computer models. And so it ends up being you know, almost this sort of sloppy approach of you don't know how many times the same piece of information. So you imagine if their power ranking is taking into account uh, you know scoring differential, well, are all of the computer models also taking into account scoring differential? Are there people on the committee, the experts that are really sort of attuned to scoring differential? So you end up with kind of combining all these forecasts, but in an incredibly unbalanced way. It's sort of a very unknown way. Um, If I was doing it, and I think most forecasting people would tell you the way to do it would be to, now you got your power rankings, then maybe you add an expert opinion, some um, some additional ranking systems, and then year in and year out, you systematically study which ones are most effective, and you come up with an algorithm for how to balance those different expert forecasts. That's would be the the gold standard to the question of what do I think these advanced analytics are are missing? I, I truly have no idea for you know a, a couple of reasons. One, some of these guys live and die, live and breathe this stuff, so probably anything any of us could think of, they figured out a way to put into their model. Number two, they always sort of have a curtain come down, and they don't want to give us the details, right? because it's based on their body of research. So it ends up being kind of a, a tough thing to really penetrate. I will say this, you know, one of the things that I don't know that anyone's really ever done is auditing of this. You know, when we have a political campaign, people will go in and audit and say, well, this poll, the Rasmussen poll was better than the Pew poll. Maybe that's something that could be done in this in this space a, as well. Jared. That's a quick follow up to that real quick. Oh, Sure. Do you think like a CFP, like the college football playoff committee
4: would be a good thing to bring to basketball, college basketball? Because that's kind of how March Madness ends up getting selected with the teams in the end, but it's not very transparent.
0: Well, like I said, I mean, it's, I think there is, there is a committee in terms of how much weight they are putting onto it. And look, I do think there's room for human interact, you know, human expertise, right? The fact that you've watched the game, the fact that you you know know that let's say one team was devastated by covid early in the year and they they they're on the upswing it's important to put that stuff into it the question is you know how much of that stuff is already captured in in the different forecasts so yeah human look if you're ever doing this and this goes beyond sports forecasting maybe the ideal approach of any business forecasting project a system is to have models combined with human expertise. The question is, how do you weight those? The way the NCAA does it, and the way other you know, college football probably does it, is they're looking at the models and then the humans are adjusting the models. To do this right, you really have to keep those things separate and figure out over time the best way to balance. That make sense? Yeah, thank you.
3: So I think you touched on this a little bit um, with your response to Keegan, Uh, I think, because I I think it's the same principle, even if it's a different application. So uh, I'm determined to use my brief business school uh, education to build a regression model to help me with sports betting. I watched a YouTube video that's helped me get pretty close to accounting for about 35% of the variation. And so I would kind of ask, you know, you you being a a professional and me kind of just being like a casual uh, data dabbler. uh, What do you think is a fairly reasonable amount of variance that you think that just kind of like your average regression builder could build because obviously it's like how you mentioned the pros had these supermodels that you know think about stuff that I could never think about. But you know, obviously I think I could get a little bit better to 35 than 35% about how much better do you think that would go?
0: What do you uh, okay so for for the let's say the less technical members of the audience, basically uh what the question is is I'm gonna predict and I don't know what you're predicting. What are you predicting? Who wins or the the point differential of a of a game? Is that the dependent variable? Okay, and what are you predicting it in terms of? What are your explanatory variables so far?
3: So so far, I am using I think like offensive rating, defensive rating, and uh, I want to say like point differential based off of home games and away games.
0: okay, so this is this is highlighting something that's increasingly tricky about doing these kind of analyses. In, in some ways, what you wanna to do to make, let's say this as pure as possible, is you want your data to be as, uh, I'm gonna kind of repeat myself, as pure as possible. So in a competition between two teams, you wanna make that prediction based on the inputs of those teams, which is probably gonna boil down to something related to let's say the talent level on those teams. Now, I'm, I, I'm not saying that I've seen anyone ever do this, but if you went out there and you looked at the recruiting ranking of all the players on Duke versus North Carolina, and you built in the fact that, you know, let's say North Carolina's players were a little bit older, and the game that they played last so the weekend was, I, I, forget, I don't remember what, it was on one of their home, home floors. If you're kind of building in those fundamental principles of what's going on, right in terms of what the talent differentials are i think you're going to be safer than if you're using other advanced statistics to predict outcomes right so there's a little bit of a challenge here with all the data that's out there well let, let's put it this way sort of a very simple issue in predictive analytics is that the explanatory variables the x's in your regression have to happen before the outcome variables And so if you're just using the data that you're pulling off of Basketball Reference or ESPN, very often it's going to be, you know, you're almost figuring out different correlations in terms of how these outcomes move together. But absolutely, I applaud that you're doing this. I love the fact that you're using your business school training to try and build a system to improve gambling outcomes.
3: It sounds like unsuccessfully at that. (laughs) I'll keep plugging at it.
0: Well, but, but you know, and, and I'll say this as well, guys. So, and so, you know, what we do here on the on the podcast is we, we focus on fandom and we focus on analytics. It is a lifelong kind of path to become a great analytics person. You, I mean, you think about some of the guys that have done these rating systems, like Jeff Sagarin, right? He has probably been at this for 20 or 30 years, right? So it's like, it is a, this, this is a marathon, this, to win this game, it's developing amazing technical skills, and then it's a marathon. You know, you, technical skills, lots of data, keep plugging around, keep plugging away.
1: Hey, Michael, this is Josh. Hey, Josh. Uh, hey
0: there. Uh, do you have any insight or have you heard around when it comes to sports gambling and illegality around that across the, the U.S.? What's the question? Where's sports gambling going to go? Yeah. Do you see it? foresee it? becoming more legal or do you think it's going to become totally legal federally? You know what? I'm reluctant to give you an opinion, but if I had to, if I had to bet on this, I would say that it's going to become completely legal pretty quickly here. You know, my, my sense is that a lot of the media companies, you know, let's just as a, you know, just as a little bit of a thought experiment, you think about what's happening to media, it's becoming more and more difficult to attract and have a live audience. Sports largely provides that live audience. It's one of the few pieces of programming that people will still gather to watch, though in the time of COVID, even that's been a challenge. And gambling is something that has a lot of promise for creating a really committed and engaged audience. The technology, and this is why I, I suspect that we're moving towards full uh, legalization. The technology is also rapidly advancing to the point where we're going to get here very quickly. Where you're going to be in a position to, you know, place a ten dollar wager on whether, uh, you know, whether LeBron makes the next free throw. And so, given the importance of, you know, get, given the importance of sports to media. Given the importance to gambling to to sports, I suspect that we're moving towards a lot more gambling. I am agnostic in terms of whether that is a plus or a minus um, for society, or actually for even sports fans.
4: To follow up on that, do you think betting exchanges or like betting marketplaces will become more popular, and why? You know, regardless of that answer, why don't you think they've been as popular in Europe and
0: other places where they are legal? Yeah, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I might even defer, you know, ask Doug what your opinion is because now we're 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 kind of getting into the realm of the political side of all this, and political predictions are, you know, beyond me at the moment. I I tend to look at the at the fundamentals, and so if I look at the fundamentals in terms of how media works, the importance of sports, and what technology is making possible, I see trends towards more gambling, but. You know, in in terms of the way people vote and what politicians want, it's beyond me. You got any thoughts, Doug?
1: Yeah, I I was saying, I mean, it's not really my area of expertise. I do, like Mike, see it continuing to move in a direction where it's just easier and easier to gamble and more and more legal, um, particularly on a mobile format. I know that the Georgia Senate recently approved legislation that would legalize sports betting um, as of like last week, I believe. Um, and the more I look into it or anytime I ever see anything in regards to sports gambling, it's, it's moving in that direction. Um, it's, it's progressing in that direction. I don't know if that answers your question. Um, like I said, it's, it's not particularly my area of expertise.
0: Okay. If we have no more questions, last thing I'll do to sort of wrap this one up is a couple of fun statistics related to the NCAA tournament. Um the estimated economic impact, 100, about $100 million to the hosting city. Obviously, that's something Atlanta lost out on this year. And I believe, well, I think it's a little bit unclear how much of that, in, that benefit that uh, it's Indianapolis, I believe, this year, right, uh, we'll, we'll end up making. Um, 150 million brackets uh, created throughout America, Okay. Right? So basically one in, you know, 50% of the population is playing this, which makes it the most popular, one of the one or two most popular means of gambling on sports in the society. And the very, well, you know what, I'll give you two more facts. $1.32 billion in TV ad revenue. So, you know, our focus here is on the sports side and on the marketing side. $1.32 really reveals how important this is both to media and how much interest there is amongst the big brands to put their products and their names out there. The very last fact I'll put out there is it's been estimated that the NCAA tournament, because it takes place during the day, and so much of the gambling takes place in the office, results in over $13 billion in lost productivity. I also wonder you know, how much that affects student effort on assignments in the month of March and April.